Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and assorted creatures. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. The first reading this week is Isaiah 25, 6 to 9, a short little text given as an optional reading for Easter Sunday. But before we get to that, we need to give a big first reading congratulations to our very own Professor Wren who successfully defended her doctoral dissertation this past weekend. Yay! Yes. I got to be there in the virtual peanut gallery, and you all would have been so impressed, though not at all surprised, by how confident and erudite she was and by her contagious excitement about her fascinating research. So congratulations, Rachel, from all of us at First Reading. All of our listeners and our community of guest scholars were so very proud of you. And if I can hope to be half as composed as you when my turn comes around, <laughs> it'll be smooth sailing. Uh, thank you. I'm crying. That's so sweet of you. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, we are proud of you. Now, we have a real treat for you all this week. We have an amazing guest scholar with us to help us walk through this text and to get the most out of it, especially for you intrepid preachers who are looking for something fresh to preach on Easter Sunday. Absolutely. We've got some insights today from Dr. Joel Kemp. He is the Assistant Professor of Hebrew Bible at Emory's Candler School of Theology. He is an expert in the latter prophets, which will serve us well today since we're talking about Isaiah. Uh, but he also has a really broad range of interests, in part because biblical scholarship is a third career for Dr. Kemp. You know, why do one thing when you could do three? He has worked as an attorney and a minister prior to his current work, and he carries those interests with him into his scholarship. His latest book is just out, Ezekiel, Law, and Judahite Identity in 2020, and, and it investigates how the book of Ezekiel uses legal elements to advocate for the reconfiguration of a Judahite identity under Neo-Babylonian dominance. This sounds like a good read. I'm excited to get my hands on it. But before that, Dr. Kemp, it's so great to have you with us. Welcome to First Reading. Oh, thank you for having me. And I offer my congratulations to you as well. Thank mm -hmm. you. Thank Making you. Making through the, that important sort of gatekeeping matter of the dissertation. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. So, Dr. Kemp, we're, we're really glad to have you with us. And we're really fascinated by your interdisciplinary background. And we'd love to know, and I'm sure our listeners would love to know, first of all, What's your favorite lawyer joke? And second of all, how has your background in law given you kind of a, a different sort of lens on your reading of the Bible? Sure. Uh, I guess I'll do the, the serious one first, which is the favorite lawyer joke. <laughs> um, <laughs> two people die, they go to heaven, and they stand at the pearly gates and see God on his throne. One person has this long argument about begging to get in. The lawyer stands up and points to God and says, you're in my spot. <laughs> uh, so, uh, that's awesome. That's, yeah. But unfortunately, the legal profession earns a certain kind of callousness and sort of self-obsession at times, but not all of us are. No. Nope. <laughs> uh, uh, so your second question, the, I guess the real serious one. <laughs> um, a lot of what I think law does for me is that it's a framework within which I can understand what I think the biblical texts are trying to do. Um, so in the context of the work I did on Ezekiel and some of my later projects, it's really asking how does law function as a way to set narratives for group identity? 
Right? How do we understand ourselves through the laws we pass, through the laws we enforce, mm. through the ways we describe ourselves? Um, so examples of things like when we pray, that's actually a kind of legal petition. Mm. Right? We're standing before God as a judge, asking for God to show us grace, to show us mercy, to honor sort of contractual ideals with us. Mm. Um, so I think those kinds of insights are what I've tried to bring to the world of Hebrew Bible and kind of reception history as the second piece. Mm. Mm. Well, that's so fascinating, too, because that's just those are interesting questions just ethnographically. What do the laws we pass say about ourselves and what do the laws we enforce say about ourselves? I mean, that's a that's just a fascinating question in general. Yeah, definitely. I think certainly in, in this unique moment in American history where you're seeing, you know, not only kind of issues of police brutality, but was it 250 laws and 43 states have been proposed to radically change sort of voting access? That's right. Yeah. Um, those kinds of questions keep popping up. And I think the biblical text has such a rich, not only reservoir of material, but has such a profound influence on American culture. Trying to bring those two together is sort of what I hope to do in the, the latter years of my, of my life. Fascinating. <laughs> well, we're really excited to dive into the lectionary text this week, which is Isaiah 25, 6 to 9. Dr. Kemp, would you mind reading that for us in English? Sure. So Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all people, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So it's Isaiah 25, 6 through 9 from the NRSV. You have a beautiful reading voice. That doesn't necessarily have to go in the podcast, but I could listen to you read the Bible all day. That was awesome. <laughs> I was going to say, if, if the if the third career doesn't work out, I could probably uh, stand to hire you as uh, yeah. somebody just, just to read the Bible to me. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> I, I could be a voiceover. Exactly. <laughs> I had a doctor once say, like, I'm going to have you read children's stories for my daughter. I'm just going to send you <laughs> a blank tape and just record them all. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> So maybe we can talk just a little bit about the context here. Our, our passage opens up by saying, on this mountain. So even right away, there is this sense of um, some sort of context going on. What, what can we say about um, where this fits in Isaiah and sort of in the flow of this prophecy? As some of your listeners will recall, you've talked earlier about kind of the three divisions of Isaiah. So first Isaiah, which is roughly chapters 1 through 39, and second Isaiah 40 through 55, and then third Isaiah 56 through 66. Mm -hmm. um, so this is traditionally considered part of first Isaiah, which is dealing with the conquest of the Neo-Syrian Empire, so the 7th, 8th century period. The chapter 25 falls in the middle of what some scholars call the Isaiah Apocalypse. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll see that some of these texts actually get kind of received and reinterpreted in later Jewish tradition and also in the Christian world within the context of Revelation. You'll see some aspects of some of these themes that seem to reemerge there. Um, so what seems to be happening here, kind of to your specific question of on this mountain, 
there are probably two candidates, and depending on you know, which scholar is telling you and which hill they mm-hmm. want to die on, both <laughs> literally and metaphorically. Right. That's great. Well um, done. Well done. There are two possibilities. Uh, the first is to think of Mount Zion. Um, so if you go back to the end of Isaiah 24, there's a reference to Mount Zion there. So there's the possibility that the writer is referencing back to that that mountain. Mm-hmm. Mount Zion has a sort of central place in kind of a lot of sort of ancient sort of Israelite theology. Um, the second possibility that you'll see among some scholars is that this is a reference to Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. Um, so huh. earlier in the Exodus narrative, um, I believe it's around the 24th or 25th chapter, there's an image of God holding a feast with the elders. That's right. Um, and so some will argue that perhaps the writers of Isaiah are alluding back to that passage um, in Exodus 24. Yeah, I remember we actually talked about that passage in our podcast. I think that was with Amanda Mbuvi. Fascinating. It's all starting yeah. to come together. What? Just real quick, what is your opinion about kind of the apocalyptic genre in Isaiah? Do you have one? For these kinds of things, it depends on what day of the week you ask. Me. Sure, right. <laughs> um, certainly how this has been received is that it's viewed as one of those kind of nascent stages of the apocalyptic genre within prophets. I'm not persuaded that Isaiah thinks of it in that context. If we think of apocalypse as sort of what may happen in the year 2522, mm-hmm. um, I think of it, particularly from the Hebrew prophets, I tend to think of much more imminent idea. Yeah. Right. That if this is going on, you know, late 8th, early 7th century, then you're imagining, okay, what will our life look like in 715 yeah. or 698, not you know, 2532 AD kind of thing. So it's expected soon or soon-ish anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I like the soon-ish. That would be soon. (laughs) This is a good scholarly term right there, soon-ish. Exactly. (laughs) Now that you're done with the PhD, you can always, soon-ish becomes appropriate. (laughs) Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Well, let's talk a little bit about the there's some kind of fun wordplay that's going on in this text and throughout these verses. I mean, it's funny because these are just, you know, four quick verses, but there's a lot going on here. So you have this oral wordplay in verse six, shamanim, shamarim, mehuchayim, mezukakim. And, you know, is there just, is that just fun or is there something actually meaningful going on with this wordplay? Yeah, I like the the wordplays. I think it it reminds us of the orality of these texts. Mm, that's right. So that hearing them does something different than just reading them. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly kind of in the Hebrew language, then you, you, you gain certain things that get lost in translation. Yeah. The one thing that came to mind to me, and I'm stealing from a former teacher of mine, is often when you have this kind of sequence of mimations, right, where the, that M sound, mm-hmm. he often argued that that sort of triggers a certain sense of comfort, mm. that it's intended to kind of settle everyone in interesting so i can so not another example later in isaiah right isaiah 40 right sort of comfort comfort my people ah. and so he argues that that's a particular scribal technique that often appears within isaiah and other uh biblical texts to try to sort of settle it down and provide mm-hmm. a less strident tone and i like that in the notion of what isaiah is describing here ah. in terms of this sort of wonderful feast yeah, when you hear it in Hebrew, you get almost kind of drowsy as you hear all these M sounds, right? Shmanim, shmarim, memum, achayim, mezukakim. Yeah. It's like the, it's the food coma, right? This is described yep. in a feast. It's the food coma here. <laughs> so what's what's with the the sort of feast image there? What's What does that yeah. image do? Yeah, certainly to me, kind of thinking about it, 
if this is being written at a time where the Neo-Syrian Empire is marching and has already captured parts of the kingdom of Israel and Judah, then there are no great feasts, mm. right? There, there are no joy celebrations. And so to me, part of how this gets thrown into kind of that apocalyptic genre is that it's a reminder, it's a promise that these festive days will return. Um, and I think certainly, you know, in COVID-19 life, that hits some of us very hard. Like, yeah. For me, you know, I've it's been two years since I've had dinner with my parents. Oh, wow. Um, and so those kinds of things of, you know, one of the things I'm looking forward to, assuming vaccines work and all those kinds of things, and there aren't 17 new strands of the, of the virus, is to have a sumptuous feast again. Yeah. Um, and so those kinds of things that, in some ways, were just such a regular part of our lives, mm. whether it's family or during kind of Easter season gathering with our church families, that's been radically disrupted. Mm. And so I think the promise of this great feast requires a certain measure of stability and peace in the society where you can do this, yeah. where you're not kind of always on edge and in war and in the famine that often results both from war and as a technique of conquering lands. That makes so much sense, especially to put it in that, you know, COVID-19, 2020, 2021. If I were to sort of like amend this image for that, I, I would like it, picture a giant hug, <laughs> you know, like that just physical <laughs> yeah. closeness. Because I, I got to see my grandma um, who's 96. Um, so oh, I, wow. I didn't get to see her face to face, but it was literally through the window and to not be able to touch her, which is such a, a normal part of our life. You know, it's a wonderful thing, but it's a normal part of our life just made that whole pandemic so real to me. And yeah. that would make sense if this, you know, feast days are special, but they're a normal, regular part of life. And so this idea that right. that thing that you long for so much, I'd never thought about the longing for a feast day, which could yeah. be really lifting up here out of the text. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly I think the, so the context as we were reflecting on this, just made this kind of resonate in a new way. Yeah. Right. That, yeah. you know, the, the idea of having a celebration, right. When I first yeah. Came to Canada in January. There was food everywhere. Right. <laughs> there were people everywhere. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. And one of the refrains I keep hearing is, "One day it'll come back. One day it'll come back." Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of what was on my mind as I was kind of looking at this text in Isaiah. Yeah. What a, What a picture of the of the promise here. It draws people back into an experience of communal rest in a way. Yeah, and that it's not a, you know, the text talks about that God will make a feast for all people. Yeah. Right. So it's not this kind of limited thing. But as you were saying, Tim, it's this community invitation. Yeah. So, so sticking with this this image of this feast, I Tim and I both had the same thought with wondering how far that feast image continues because verse 7 mm -hmm. starts with this, you know, yeah. and he will swallow up on this mountain. So is that is the feast image kind of like twisting there or turning or what's going on with that? Yeah, in my head, I like to think of it as sort of an intentional wordplay. Mm. You know, and sometimes, again, the way some translations do it, they change swallow to destroy. Yeah. Which I'm not crazy about, but you know, shameless plug to study Hebrew from Absolutely. Hebrew scholars. Absolutely. <laughs> You're going to find nothing but support for that here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think it's an interesting contrast for the portrait of God that emerges from this. Yeah. Right. So, the image of Adonat Savayot, so the Lord of hosts, hmm. right? And as a kid, I used to think that means God's the great choir director. Because <laughs> <That's laughs> awesome. in my head, I always thought of hosts as like this angelic gathering. Yeah. Like, you know, mm -hmm. 
and obviously you study, you realize it's more of a military image. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of this interesting juxtaposition, right? This god of war is also kind of a great chef. Yeah. Ah. But then, you know, in verse seven, the god of war returns. Mm. Right. And mm-hmm. so rather than kind of creating a great feast, he's the one who's swallowing these other things. Ah. Um, and so I think of it as sort of a, a an intentional play with the feast imagery and the image of God as the Lord of war. Yeah, that, that really resonates with my read of this, too. Uh, in preparation, I, I did a little quick word study on Bilah, on mm-hmm. the swallowing word. And most often it is in a military context of like an empire that swallows up the people or the nations. It's a violent and deathly image. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yet this, it's turned here that rather than death doing the swallowing, death right. gets swallowed Swallowed up by God. It, it, immediately what comes to mind for me is um, Aaron's staff in the Exodus story mm-hmm. and the, uh, the magicians of the Egyptians are able to turn their, their sticks into snakes too, but then Aaron's swallows them up. There's this sort of ironic twist here that death, who is such a swallower right. in this vision, gets swallowed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And if you kind of think of the historical context of this, right, that if you have lost friends, family members, neighbors who've been swallowed up mm-hmm. by this kind of neo-Syrian incursion, then what power is it to say, no, your God will swallow up even that? Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly kind of in the Christian tradition in Easter, the notion of death being swallowed, like, if that doesn't jump off the page at you, I would, yeah. <laughs> I would say, you know, go back and read it more slowly and more carefully. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What do you make of this of this fact that this shroud language, can you can you kind of open that up for us a little bit more? I could, but doesn't that go against the shroud? <laughs> <laughs> well played, well played. Thank you, thank you. And I will acknowledge that this was more of a pastoral kind of move in my head than a sort of a, a textual one. Mm. But I thought of more, what are the effects of the shroud? Mm. Uh, I was thinking of kind of a lot of the mental health crises that we see mm. just multiplying coming to the surface right now. And so in my mind, sort of the shroud, which creates sort of darkness, which dims vision, mm-hmm. which isolates. And so in my mind, I was thinking about how is it that God is eliminating that or how God could eliminate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of the later image we get, I think it's in verse eight, the wiping away of tears. Mm-hmm. Um, that just sort of, it triggered that kind of pastoral moment in my mind of what are some of the kind of soulful, spiritual effects mm-hmm. of this battle? And is that something that God is able to reverse? Yeah, the reversal of the effects of trauma. I mean, that's a powerful. Yeah, yeah. Verse 9 picks up on that. It will be said on that day, this is our God. This sort of tickled a little compositional critical thing for me. I feel like I've heard that uh, in the prophets especially, um, when we have this phrase, it will be said on that day, that sometimes that's a, a marker of like a later redaction. Like maybe there's something here that's been inserted. And I don't know how you would feel about that, Dr. Kemp. Certainly, as you're describing, Tim, I think there is a pattern among some scholars who do want to assert that when you see this language, it's likely an addition. You know, and certainly just in the context here, you know, verse eight ends with kind of the familiar, you know, for Adonai Dabat, like God has spoken. And that's often a concluding you know, point. Yeah, exactly. Sort of the exclamation point on your on your sentence. <laughs> um, so then to add something to it does sometimes suggest that there is a later editing taking place. Mm. I think part of what it adds is it switches the nature of the conversation. 
Mm. Right. So in verses six through eight, it's really talking about God. There's no sort of possessive pronoun. Mm-hmm. Um, but once we get to verse nine, it switches, right? This is our God. We have heard this. We have waited. He might save us. And so to me, I was struck by that switch. And I was wondering if if the writer was trying to emphasize that this is no longer just a, a fact exterior to the nation, but this is our own experience. Mm. Um, and so that sort of validation of the of the covenant, that validation of Yes, these things are real, these incursions, the trauma caused by it, but our waiting on God was worth it, right? That the promise of victory or salvation is actually ours on that day, right? So there's a, a time certain where this will become real for us. Mm. Coming out of an African-American Christian tradition, that theme of an on this day or in that day, right, is often a refrain that, that you'll see at the end of sermons to kind of rally the people's hearts. Mm. So, yeah, we know this is challenging now, but on that day, uh-huh. this will happen. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes a lot of sense to me. The The idea that sort of the pattern or the structure of this passage in a way is uh, it starts out with a statement of the hope and sort of a vision of, mm-hmm. of what God is all about. And then in verse 9, there's like a taking hold of it, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. uh, receiving it and claiming it as belonging to us. Going back to your earlier comment, Tim, about sort of the communal nature of it, Mm -hmm. right? So now the community gets defined, I think, even more narrowly, but more intimately. Mm. Uh, And I think that's one of the terms that I think these verses allow for us to think about when we preach it or even study it, right? So there's a promise for perhaps the world that this pandemic will end Mm -hmm. if we use sort of the modern application. Mm -hmm. But what does that mean for us, Mm. right? For those, for many of us, in Christian traditions, this is the second Easter without a church gathering. Yeah. Um, and so what does that mean? Like, do we still believe that there will be an Easter where we'll be crammed on top of each other <laughs> uh, <laughs> and not worried about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's also something really beautiful about, I mean, you know, redaction theories aside, but just there's a kind of a building that happens between eight and nine on this theme of speaking you know, ki Adonai di Be'er, for the Lord has spoken, va'amar ba'yom ha'hu, and on that yeah. day it will be said. So it's like God's speech almost provokes this speech from the people or, or gives permission or makes room for or inspires. And, you know, it's they haven't spoken yet in the text, but um, it's this promise that uh, once spoken to the people allows them to speak as well. The, the latent liturgist in me is kind of like wanting to jump out here. Like we're, we're encouraging all of you preachers out there to use this as your sermon text. But if you happen to be preaching a New Testament text on Easter Sunday, this would be a great text to work into a kind of antiphonal liturgy mm-hmm. where parts of it are read and then the, the congregation responds, this is our God. We have waited for God. This is this is the Lord for whom we've waited. Let's rejoice and be glad in God's salvation. That would make a great sort of like back and forth liturgy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, if nothing else is obvious at this point, this text captures what Christians think about Easter. I mean, there's a reason it's been assigned on this day. The imagery is so powerful. So, you know, don't just... If you're not going to preach on it, don't just read it once and then move past it. Like, use it. Just sit in that imagery however you can. Absolutely. And certainly kind of coming through the season of Lent where it is the 
the long dark nights, if you will, of the cost of love. Mm-hmm. Easter is our chance to celebrate. Yeah. You know? And in some traditions, it's the first time you can say hallelujah. Yep. In 40 days. So use this to celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> well, another... Uh, Another sort of potential preaching pitfall as we deal with a text like this is to look at that swallowing up of death and assign it directly to Jesus and his resurrection uh, without giving uh, attention to the way that this text functioned in a, in an ancient Israelite context and also in, in a contemporary Jewish context, for example. Do you have any thoughts, Dr. Kemp, about sort of this as a, an example or a case study in how we share the treasures of a text like this with our Jewish neighbors? I love that phrase of sharing the treasures of a text. Yeah. One of the things that comes to mind is this image that death is in some way a, a foe, a disruption that religious traditions wrestle with. Yeah. Um, and how do we understand God's relationship to it? Mm. Um, and certainly, as you both know, in the ancient Near East, death is often animated as though it were another deity. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the military conquest then, again, this may be getting too deep in the weeds, but the image of the military conquest of a god of war, raging war and defeating death, right? That that's a, a place of connection that, and then we'll for sake of argument say that Jews and Christians have the same God, although there's some debates about that in different circles. Um, but this idea that the God we each serve has the power to destroy this enemy of death. Mm. Um, is a point of connection, right? Because death is that ultimate disruption in human community. Mm-hmm. And so how do we understand that? And how do we wrestle with that as humans, I think is one of the things that this text can offer. <laughs> but I think this idea of what do you do with death as an enemy of God, as an enemy of life, as an enemy of community, mm. and to assert God's ultimate dominion over that, mm. um, I think becomes a place where we can have that common ground. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this is such a rich text. <laughs> For just a few verses, I feel yeah. like we've really dug into quite a bit that just hits home, especially in our uh, contemporary context facing this pandemic. Given that, I wonder, are there some ways that we would angle into a sermon here, like how we might coach preachers who want to take a, take a risk and on Easter Sunday, preach the Old Testament reading as the sermon yes. text. <laughs> if, if, if some of our folks out there want to do that, how might we suggest they could get into a sermon here? You know, one thought was to almost frame it as a way of understanding another layer to the significance of Easter Sunday. Mm. Oftentimes, Easter Sunday becomes metaphored or spiritualized. And the tangible nature of Christ's victory over death on Easter can sometimes get lost. That it's not this great promise generations in the future, but maybe there's something happening now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, again, sounding like a broken record, but using COVID, mm-hmm. right? That there's real death, there's real suffering right now. But there's also a promise that somehow Christ has and will transform that, swallow that up so that there will be rejoicing. Mm-hmm. And so how then do we understand our rejoicing in that light? And I think the backstory to this text in Isaiah provides a way to really provide an articulation of the lament and the pain that many in our congregations are suffering, Mm -hmm. but also balance it out with, yeah, one day we'll have Easter dinner again. Mm -hmm. And isn't that a hope worth living for? Isn't that a, a God worth rooting for? 
So we can, in verse 10, say we've waited, we've trusted, and God has delivered. Hmm. I feel like the part of our conversation where we talked about the reality of death in this as, as an enemy, that really strikes me as a preachable point. I, I feel like the preacher in me gets to Easter Sunday and wants to like not really talk about death. <laughs> this is this is the day for celebrating life. <laughs> but this prophecy gives a way of talking about the hope of Easter while facing death head on. And in a time where we've been surrounded by death for so long here, to have a, a word of hope that faces the enemy of death head on and says, God is swallowing up death. That's a way of, of being honest about our hope and what we're facing. I think there's a sermon in there. I think there's a, a misnomer that hope somehow doesn't connect to reality. Mm-hmm. And I think to me, the mystery and the grace of hope is that it's so deeply rooted in reality. Mm-hmm. Right? So you're not sort of having a Disney fantasy yeah. uh, of, of unicorns jumping around on rainbows covered in gold. Like you're not doing that, <laughs> <laughs> right? That was really quick. You pulled that out real fast. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's really rather this issue of in light of literally seeing our nation destroyed, yeah. our sons and daughters dying in war in the context of this text. How do you maintain hope in light of that reality. Yeah. And to me, I think, you know, a lot of parallels between this particular moment we find ourselves in and kind of the text and the promise that Easter offers those of us who are in the Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. That's a really important point, too. I think we, we talk about war often, but for some reason, when you said that, it just struck me like, these are people who have lost loved ones in battle. These are people for whom death is an imminent reality. Um, I think for me, the place that I went, uh, well, first of all, I just love this image of God as chef. I mean, I could I could <laughs> stay on the food feast image and of God's relationship to feasting because I've always loved like Genesis 2 of God as gardener with fingers in the dirt, you know, and here yeah. God as chef is just a fantastic image because preparing food for people is one of the ways my husband and I love to to show care and to show respect and to show, you know, love for others. So I really resonated with that. Um, but yeah, this this shroud piece, I think, is the the one that um, really spoke out to me. And I think because um, our nation had such a varied experience of the pandemic, depending on where you lived. So for some, death was such an imminent, intimate thing. And for others, it was more like a shroud, more like something that's hanging over you and kind of bringing everything dimmer and and more difficult and so this idea of a shroud being swallowed up and what that might look like and yeah the the hope of of that day when the tears will be wiped away and death will be gone forever you know i think that's an image um especially because you know i don't i didn't do a word study in this word so i can't say this for sure by any means but when I think of the death shroud, you know, the veil that would be put over the face of the dead body. There's just a lot in there that I think could make for a really powerful sermon because it um, speaks to a lot of people's experience of the last year plus. So that's where I would go with it. I think we should let Dr. Wren have the last word in this <laughs> exactly <laughs> in this conversation. <laughs> it's still so fun to hear. <laughs> <laughs> it never gets tired. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, this has been such a such a rich conversation. Dr. Joel Kemp, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. Hopefully we can do this again. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, preachers, we hope there was something useful for your uh, Easter sermon text in this conversation. We invite you to share this with a friend or a text study or even just on social media in some way. Head on over to iTunes or wherever you get podcasts so that you can subscribe to our Old Testament in the New Testament series that we're going to be doing during Easter this year. Very excited about that. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks to Kai Engel for the music behind the reading, and thanks to you all for listening. Let us be glad and rejoice in God's salvation! Woo!